0: All right. Good morning. There we go. All right. Um, Well, welcome everyone. Glad you could all make it this morning. Uh, Palm Sunday. We've been walking through Galatians in true to Cornerstone fashion. We're going to keep walking through Galatians, so this isn't a separate Palm Sunday uh, message per se. Um, But excited to, to dig into Galatians with you guys this morning. So, you don't mind standing with me while we read the Word of God. Um, I don't, I didn't give it to Harley in advance, so. Uh, It's Galatians 3, 15 through 18, Um, and up there is probably the ESV. I'm actually going to be reading from the CSB, so if you see some differences, that's why. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will, Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Dear God, thanks for your word. Um, I pray that uh, you might be heard today, not me. Um, Anything I say that's not of you, that people might forget that quickly. Um, And that uh, whatever you want people to hear, they might hear. We love you, God. Amen. Be seated. So walking through this letter, Paul starts off this section as brothers and sisters. Um, Paul seems to be talking to them as fellow believers, which is fitting given how he started the letter to the Galatians. He he talks to them as brothers and sisters. Um, It's telling that while he doesn't hesitate to rebuke, because just a few paragraphs earlier uh, in three verses one, he calls them, you foolish Galatians, which was not a term of endearment, This also doesn't preclude him from affection and from identifying with them. In context, I'm wondering if this is like me saying to a friend who I see making sinful or poor choices, how are you being so stupid? And then in the same breath, encouraging that person. And I've done that before. Um, It probably wasn't the most tactful thing I've ever said, but uh, God used it. And and it happens all the time in life. It happens all the time on my hockey team. We call out stupidity and mistakes, and at the same time, we encourage each other to make better plays uh, and to do better. And if it can happen in that arena of life, in hockey, it should also happen in other arenas of life where the stakes are higher. Uh, It reminds me of a couple weeks ago, Amanda and I were in an argument, it happens sometimes, rarely, but we were in an argument, and I was talking to one of my best friends on the phone, and he said, "Chris." you know what you need to do. I said, no, Jay, I don't know what I need to do. If I knew what I needed to do, I wouldn't be calling you. Um, And he told me I needed to apologize without qualifying the apology, which I I did need to do. And so in the same five-minute drive to Awana to pick up my kids, my friend told me I was being an idiot, and he encouraged me to do the right thing. Good friends do that. Um, And I wonder if we, as elders at this church, do that enough for you Um, or if you're a life group leader or if you're a parent, um, whatever our role, if we're in a leadership role over someone else, do we rebuke that person in love and then draw close in love? Do we see people well enough to see the areas that they need to grow in? Do we, when we're recipients of correction, um, give those who correct us enough credit to actually listen to them? Do we, when correcting, Give our brothers and sisters um, the love to treat them as brothers and sisters, even if we see them in error? Or do we come across taking the baseball bat of truth and just swinging away? Um, or do we, do, we, do we truly encourage them to follow Jesus and recognize that even though we're disagreeing right now, we can still encourage them in that? Um, this can be in life decisions. This can be in theology. It can even be when you see Facebook posts. Um, I I know I've seen Facebook posts that were theological in nature that I disagreed with of brothers and sisters here in in the body of Cornerstone and I didn't say anything. And that was probably wrong of me. Um, Corey Kirkwood has called me out on Facebook posts that he disagreed with. And that was a loving, gracious thing of him to do. Heaven forbid we disagree on, on politics or wearing masks during COVID or any of these other divisive issues that have happened um, it, it, and we act as if somebody is not a believer because they disagree with us. We, we push them out. And I think Paul sets a great example here of, like, confront them to their face in love and realize you might disagree on things, and that's okay. You can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul is making his case here uh, between the law and the promise, and that's what he's been walking through And so, just to remind you, the law was given to Moses. And so, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses sums it up. And he says, in Deuteronomy 30, he says, "'For I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, "'to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, "'statutes, and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply, "'and that the Lord your God may bless you "'in the land you are entering to possess. "'But if your heart turns away and you do not listen,' and you are led astray to bow and worship to other gods and serve them, I tell you today, you will certainly perish and will not prolong your days in the land you are entering to possess across the Jordan. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God, obey him, remain faithful to him, For he is your life, and he will prolong your days as you live in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And after he sets before them life and death, at the end of Deuteronomy 31, Moses just says, listen, you're going to screw this up. I know you guys too well. You're going to screw it up. You're toast. So that's the law. Moses is saying, hey, do this, choose life, and I know you're not going to you're going to screw it up. And the promise, Now, the promise was given to Abraham, and if, if you notice, the promise was given to Abraham before any conditions were put on it. Even before circumcision as a sign of the covenant, when you look at the promises to Abraham, they were all given prior to circumcision. Covenant ceremony in Genesis 15 that, that Tony touched on, um, that was before circumcision. So when you look at the first promise to I. Isaac, after Abraham, when he's alone, does does God give him conditions on the promise? He he doesn't. In Genesis 26, he says, I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham, and speaks of Abraham's obedience. So, if we look at the promises given to Abraham, again, before any conditions were given, in Genesis, I'm just going to read through these. So, Genesis 1 through three, is the initial calling of Abraham and the promise. It says, and the Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Again, no conditions there. Genesis 13, 14 through 16. The Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you are. Look north, south, east, west. For I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Genesis 15, one. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Genesis 15:5, which is one of my favorites. And he took him outside, and he said, Look at the sky. Count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. In Genesis 15, 9 through 20 is when he has that covenant ceremony where where he takes the offerings and he splits them in two um, and then puts Abraham into a deep sleep and God walks through the covenant ceremony by himself as Abram is is asleep. Um, And it says, when the sun had set and it was dark, A smoking fire pot and flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying I give this land to your offspring. God is just making promise after promise after promise. In Genesis 17 is when the the sign of circumcision is added um, and the Lord appears to him and says I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you. "'and I will multiply you greatly.' And Abraham fell face down, and God spoke to him and said, "'As for me, here is my covenant with you. "'You will become the father of many nations. "'Your name will no longer be Abram. "'Your name will be Abraham, "'because I will make you the father of many nations. "'And I will make you extremely fruitful "'and will make nations and kings come from you. "'And I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you "'and your future offspring through their generations.' It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land which you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. God also said to Abram, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. In Genesis twenty-two seventeen through 18 it says, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars in the heavens, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So God's given a lot of promises over and over to Abram. And to be honest, as I was com- combing through this, I looked at Genesis 17, and I didn't want to include it. Because Genesis 17, God talks about circumcision. He talks about an act that Abraham, that he's calling Abraham to do. It's a sign of the covenant. That muddies the picture. It's a lot clearer if I just list out these promises, and there's, there's no requirements, and that's the point that Paul's making here. Um, but honestly, the Bible can get muddy sometimes. I believe in faith that it's all true, breathed out by God, but there are parts of the Bible that I don't understand. I don't fully understand how faith and works work together. The Bible talks about both, and I can clearly see that God promises to Abraham before any works, but he also calls Abraham to obedience. And somehow those two work together, and I don't fully understand it. Which brings me to the middle of the passage here in Galatians, in verse 16, he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, "into seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And that was where it started to get interesting and quirky for me in reading this. Um, I went down the rabbit hole in Greek and Hebrew, and I am not a Greek or a Hebrew scholar, uh, so I was relying on other people. But in Hebrew, the word for seed... Um, is also translated into our, into our translations as offspring, descendants, a couple other things. Um, but that, that word that's used for seed in this passage is used 221 times. That's a lot. That, that, that's a lot of repetition there. It's the same word in Genesis 3.15 where God puts enmity between the serpent and Adam's seed. and I'm thinking that that's purposeful, because it's one of the many hyperlinks in the Bible that help us see the Bible as this unified story. Um, Jews, when they were reading it, they didn't have a concordance that they could, you know, go look up a word. And so, those repetition helped them see, ah, that links back to this thing. So, it's the promise to Adam. It's the same word in God's promise to Noah in his seed in Genesis nine Um The surprising thing for me in looking through this was that uh, the King James Version is the only version I could find that consistently translates this to seed, Um, because the others try to help you see whether it's a plural or singular meaning. Um, But the King James Version translates it as seed every time, which was helpful to see that continuity. Hey, this is the same thing each time. Um, But sometimes there is a plural meaning to that word. It's the same word, but sometimes it's used in a plural way, and sometimes it's used singular. Um, so in Genesis seventeen seven, 7, he, he talks about um, the seed after you, and, and you can't number the dust, right? That's a plural meaning, but he's also referring to a singular thing. And so just like circumcision made kind of that, that muddy picture, if you will, I'm not sure how Paul aside from inspiration from the Holy Spirit, arrived at a, hey, this is a singular pointing to Jesus thing, not a plural thing. Um, To quote from one commentary I found, the word seed, whether Hebrew or English, is often used in a figurative sense to refer to one descending from another. The word can have a singular or a collective meaning. Even as a collective meaning, however, it is viewing the individual elements as a unit together, as a whole. So even in plurality contained within the collective is considered a single unit. So That's some clarification, there's some continuity there. Um, We see this in modern English all the time where we use words like the church, right? The church is a singular word, but we're referring to a collective. Or family, family is a singular word, but it's referring to a collective of people. And the reason I bring all this up is, is I was struggling with this. As, as I was studying the, the passage today, so why does Paul do this? Is Paul rightly handling the Old Testament? Like those are scary questions for me to ask, honestly. Like I, I read that and I feel that question, and I immediately feel guilty because um, it feels like I'm questioning the Word of God. But I'm really encouraged that we serve a really big God who is not scared of our questions. He's not scared of an honest. Search for truth. God is truth. If God is truth, as the Bible says. It says, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart. So, looking at the promise in Genesis 13, where he says, for all the land you see, to I will give you and to your seed forever, and I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, so shall your seed be numbered. Again, there's, there's a singular and there's, there's a plurality there that, that confused me. To borrow from one commentator, the promise here is that the land is going to go to Abraham and to his seed forever. At this point, there are two meanings the term could have. It could be a reference to singular son, Isaac, and it could be a reference to a collective of Descendants. And that collective view is, is evident in verse 16 because it talks about the dust of the earth. Um, and of course, the collective will itself manifest in a further generation from a singular seed, from Isaac, and it's from Isaac, not Ishmael. So the promise to a seed stays constrained. There, there are limits around it. It's not just like, hey, all your descendants. It's through Isaac. Genesis twenty one twelve. it says, for in Isaac... Shall thy seed be called? That hints at more than just a physical nature to this. Physical offspring are not called out. They're generated through sexual reproduction. So the promised seed that God was referring to with Abraham was to be generated by a calling. There's a spiritual seed there. And Jesus fulfilled both of those. Jesus was literally a... from, from genealogy, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through the line of David, came Jesus. So he fulfilled that literal through a seed singular there. He also fulfilled the spiritual element of it because he's the only one who, who fully lived out the promise, upheld the law. Um, in, in Galatians 3.29, it says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So to summarize, if you're confused now, (laughs) to summarize, Paul says that the seed that the promise is talking about specifically points to Jesus, And, and I don't fully understand how he arrives at that conclusion other than inspiration from the Holy Spirit, and that's okay. It's okay to not fully understand. We can go our whole lives meditating on the Word of God and still not understand, and we can also spend our whole lives meditating on it and say, hey, it means this. And then we arrive in eternity, and God might be like, hey, by the way, you were so sure about that one interpretation, you got that one wrong. Then you'll have eternity to continue to meditate on it in the fullness of who God is. So I really appreciate that after Paul's making this point, um, he steps back and he says, here's the main point. It reminds me of the first sermon that I heard Tony preach. It was Amanda and I's first Sunday at Cornerstone. Um, and he was preaching through 1 Corinthians, and I even forget what the passage was, but there's different commentators that interpreted it in a different way, and Tony said, so I've spent this whole week studying this, um, and I came to the conclusion that I don't know which one's right. But the point of it is, and he zoomed out and look, looked at the whole chapter in the context, um, and it feels like that's what Paul's doing a bit here, is he's zooming out and saying, listen up. Here's the main point. 430 years after the promise was the law. And even us humans realize that, that covenants or wills are not changeable once they're in effect. So how much more so with a God who establishes order and never changes? I have in my job walked four clients through a death in the family this last year. Uh, Amanda and I are updating our estate documents right now. And it's really clear that in a will, after someone passes away, you you can't change that. My grandma died when I was just out of college, and I was fortunate enough to receive something from my grandma through her will. And my uncles were the executors of of the estate, and so my uncles let me know, hey, Chris, you're a beneficiary of this. Here's what grandma left you. And they couldn't say, hey, Chris, so... Grandma promised you some money, and we're going to give it to you, but only after you worked four years in the family business. It doesn't work that way. You can't add conditions after death. It's, it's foolishness. And if you strike a contract and you're selling your business, you don't come to the agreement and sign all the documents um, and then go back and say, oh, wait, 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 but, but I wanted that, this other thing. You can't change it. Once you've signed it, it's a done deal. Paul's clear and takes away the confusion by the end of this paragraph. He says, listen, you can't have a promise made and then conditions added to it 430 years later. You're stuck with what you promised. So for better or worse, for the pain or the pleasure of the inheritors or the other parties in the business deal, God repeatedly says, I am the Lord, I do not change. God made a covenant with Abraham. He swore on his own integrity. He won't change that promise. He sealed the deal on his own without any conditions of Abraham's obedience. He goes through that covenant ceremony on his own, probably, not probably, it's because God knows that Abraham is human, and he can't uphold the deal. None of us can. Abraham failed to live a life of integrity and faith in the promise multiple times. Multiple times, he tried to take things into his own hand. Now, Abraham also had many moments of great faith. He had many moments where he, he relied on the promise of the Lord. But the point is, he was, he was just as flawed as you and me. It's not like these, these Sunday school heroes that we can sometimes make things out to be of like, oh, they live these perfect lives. No, Abraham was a man just like you and me. That doesn't change who God is. God's the consistent side of this bargain. He's the one that holds all things together, including his covenant. The last phrase, but God gave it to Abraham, uh, is translated in the CSB as God graciously gave it, and that's because the word that's used there, uh, the root word is charis, or grace in Greek. Um, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but that's the root word that just expresses, it's, it's not just a gift, it's this gratuitous gift, It's this completely undeserved gift. God has gratuitously given Abraham and the children of the faith in Abraham the promise of blessing of which the fulfillment was found in Jesus the Messiah. The verb tense where it says God gave, it's a perfect tense, which means it's permanent. It's not going to change. The covenant was established, It's held together by him, and nothing we can do can add to it or take away from it. Martin Luther put it this way, so much is certain before the law ever existed. God gave Abraham the inheritance or blessing by the promise. In other words, God granted unto Abraham remission of sins, righteousness, salvation, and everlasting life. Not only to Abraham, but to all believers, because God said, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The blessing was given unconditionally. The law had no chance to butt in because Moses was not yet born. How then can you say that righteousness is obtained through the law? So what do we do with that? We rest. I am terrible at resting. Driven by some American Protestant work ethic or something, I'm driven to accomplish, to be a better father, to be a better husband, follower of Jesus, Co-worker, None of those things are bad. But I think part of what drives me is proving that I'm worth it. Or that I can control it. Like I can control things like my my kid's eternal destiny. if, If I'm just, you know, the right kind of father to them. If I just explain the gospel in the right way. Like if I follow the formula, I can have the perfect marriage. That somehow The way that I live out my faith will just make it evident to those around me of who Jesus is. Um, And it will show an unbelieving world the glory of Jesus and convince them of their need for repentance. If I do it the right way, that somehow me being good enough will bring others into the family of God. It's, It's not how it works. So I need to rest. I need to rest in the promise that the righteous will live by faith. That faith comes from the word of God, that the fruit of the spirit comes not from trying hard enough, but by abiding in Jesus, resting in him. John fifteen four says, remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I had a, a friend who once put it this way, like, a tree doesn't say, I'm going to try really hard, and there's a fruit. It's like, no, the, the tree is what it is, and that branch remains in the tree, and God waters it and sunlight, and fruit is produced. God didn't say, try harder. He said, remain in me, abide. I couldn't do anything to inherit what my grandma left me. Couldn't try harder to be her grandson. I just was her grandson. And so I benefited. I was a recipient of undeserved favor, of a gift I could never earn. Now, when I received that gift, I thought about how she would want me to use it. I wanted to make her proud by stewarding the gift well. It's the same way with the Lord. We receive by believing his promises. We're children through faith. We can't work harder to become members of the family of God. But when we receive his grace, we should desire to steward it well. But rest in him, he's gonna work out the fruit. So today we're celebrating Palm Sunday and this wasn't a Palm Sunday sermon. But on Palm Sunday, the crowds, they got it far more right than they ever realized. They cried, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We sang those words, and for the longest time, I had no idea what Hosanna meant. Maybe you don't either. That's okay. (laughs) Um, But Hosanna is a word that literally means save us now. So they could do nothing, the crowds could do nothing to save themselves. When they said Hosanna in the highest, they were probably thinking of a nationalistic thing. But Jesus, the seed, the son of David, the one who came in the name of the Lord, came to seek and save the lost. There is nothing you can do but cry Hosanna, save us now. That's, that's, that's what all our hope is on. That's the whole point that Paul's making here. It's not about the law. It's not about what you're doing. It's about God's promise that we have to rest in. So we're going into a time of communion now. And communion is a time where we remember that Christ was the one who completed the work. He fulfilled the promise. He kept the law. He did what we never could our response is to cry, Hosanna. to Ask the Lord to save us now. So as we go into communion, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are invited up to partake in the elements, but knowing that that's not what saves you. It's just symbols. What saves you is the promise that God has made. It's all his work. There's a song um, called Hosanna, not the one that we sang, although I love that one too. Uh, And at the end, it says, you have crushed beneath your heel the vile serpent. You have carried to the grave the black stain. You have torn apart the temple's holy curtain. You have beaten death at death's own game. Hosanna. Hosanna, hail the long-awaited king. Come to set his people free. We cry, oh, Hosanna. Won't you tear this temple down and raise it up on holy ground? Hosanna. I will lift my voice and sing. You have come and washed me clean. Hosanna. So, um, I think that team's going to play for us uh, as we sing or, um, or as we take communion. So, invite you guys to, to come on up and, and partake in that.